Welcome everybody to the Get Stung podcast. This is episode nine, and I have a really special guest on today. Um, he's a gentleman that I met at Equinox a little over five years ago. Um, he's a world-renowned yoga instructor, meditation teacher. Um, he's famous for creating his own yoga practice, or partially. He can correct me on that if I'm wrong. It's called Pranavayu, and I've had the chance to take his class multiple times. He has a super soothing voice. Uh, he's a, really a good gentleman and a really nice guy. Um, I'd like to introduce everyone, uh, David Magone. Welcome to the podcast, David. Justin, thank you for having me. It's really great to connect again, man. I was uh, always fond of running into you at Equinox. It's <laughs> awesome to be able to connect uh, to online again, for sure. Yeah, I, I, was, I was so upset um, when I found out you had left because, uh, you know, you I, I never really had a yoga practice before I uh, joined Equinox and I started with your class. And uh, the thing I loved about it was the guided meditation at the at the beginning and the end of the practice. And, um, you know, also in the core of the practice was, was really good. So, yeah, thank you for thank you, man. Me to that. Um, of course. So, yeah, David, so um, been following you a lot on, on Instagram. And of course, we met over five years ago and you're doing some really interesting things. And um, with my own progression and my own spiritual journey and just improving in self-growth, um, I really just become attached to what, what you're doing. Um, so one, one thing that's really stuck out to me lately is your frozen or cold therapy and just re really healing through ice and snow. And um, that hype video that, that you had was, was awesome. Maybe you want to go jump in a frozen lake. So I guess we'll start there and uh, just kind of talk to us about that. Yeah, so... <clears throat> When I first started teaching yoga, I wanted to, I, I basically started out as a med and, and I began yoga practice because people told me it would make meditation easier. Um, now, after I got started, you know, I heard about these famous Tibetan monks who are able to meditate in snow fields. Uh, you know, they go out to these really cold environments. They wear very little clothing and they sit and they meditate. And not only do they not shiver, but they melt snow around their body. So in the back of my mind, you know, I always wanted to learn that particular type of meditation. And when I moved to Boston here, I had the good fortune to meet uh, my teacher, who's a Tibetan monk. His name is Lama Megmar Tsetsen. Yeah. And I asked him if he would teach me the practice. He told me I'd have to do some homework ahead of time. And he made me study, I think, for around nine years before he introduced me to the practice. <laughs> so <laughs> he was not joking about the homework. But when I started, you know, I was uh, practicing uh, Tumo, which is the name of the heat building practice inside. And I always wanted to do it outside, but my problem was that I had PTSD. Um, when I was younger, around 12, one of my friends fell off a frozen waterfall. And after the, uh, I was, uh, you know, there the same day that it happened and it really messed me up. Um, it, it basically just derailed whole aspects of my life. And I went with undiagnosed PTSD for a long time. Um, one thing that happened with me is though I grew up in a snowy environment and I used to love it. Whenever I would be out on a snowy day that reminded me even a little bit of the day my friend died, I would have flashbacks. Um, so it wasn't like memories that are popping up in my head, but I would actually kind of feel like I was there. It would just like viscerally pop up. And so it kind of made it hard for me to interact with snowy environments. But at some point, you know, my love of that meditation practice overtook my fear of my flashbacks and some of the physical sensations I got due to PTSD. And I just started to train outside. Um, so one of the first things I did is I tried to get used to the cold by swimming in uh, an icy lake in the middle of the winter time. 
And then that helped, uh, you know, I kept spending more time outside doing hikes without my shirt on and eventually meditating outside uh, with very little protection. And one day I just found that my flashbacks disappeared. I don't even know when it happened. Like somewhere along the way, it really healed me through the practice. So um, I credit all the cold acclimation and uh, just being outside for that practice and the meditations for helping with that. So for me, it's been just an amazing transformative experience. Yeah, that that's amazing. And um, I'm sorry to hear about, you know, your, your friend in the waterfall accident. Um, Thank but, you. It, but it sounds like you really found healing in, you know, going back into, you know, a situation where you're, where it's cold, it, bringing flashbacks. Um, at like, what point did you, were you like, this is, I'm going to keep pushing through forward. Like there must've been times when you got out there and you're like, well, I, I can't do this, but how were you able to keep going forward? Like, what was that process like for you? You know, Justin, it was actually the very first time. Like, I, I remember I, I went out and I did it all by myself. Like, I wanted to hop into an icy lake and I was so scared to do it. Um, you know, that waterfall, there's a ton of ice water and stuff like that. So that brought up all sorts of issues. Yeah. But I remember standing in the water up to my ankles and, you know, like, there's pain associated with it. my feet hurt. And I, it felt like there were pins and needles pouring into my ankles. But I hadn't felt so alive in years, honestly. I was just like, yeah. oh, my God. You know, I, I was totally present. I was able to focus on what was going on. And, and that pain, I think, really sort of helped to connect me to my body. So the next day, I did my first ice plunge down to my neck. And I kid you not, you know, I haven't felt clearer in years. And yeah. it was addicting, you know, for just a moment, my past disappeared. My future just completely disappeared. And I was just there. And not, not only would I was, was I there, but I was just so connected to my body. And I think part of my PTSD was dissociation. You know, I have a really, I had a really hard time with feeling um, both physically as well as emotionally. And that water just stripped it away, like right <laughs> off the bat. So I was like, oh my God, I want some more of that. So after that, it just became a, a regular process. Yeah, that's similar to the what happened to me mm -hmm. about six to eight months ago with the whole, you know, my get stung and the, the mantra. So I, I was out in the woods running and, um, I, I picked up trail running as a, as a hobby and it was really hard because I was super out of shape. I'd been smoking cigarettes at the time, drinking a lot. So I, I had gained like 15, 20 pounds. And, uh, I remember I was just in the woods and it, it hurt so much, but like you, like in that moment, it, it felt like so fucking good. Like I was like, everything was just gone. Like all the anger in me, all the fear, all the anxiety, everything that I've been holding on to just seemed to just disappear. And, um, now I'm always continuously seeking, seeking that pain, <laughs> you know, um, that's amazing, man. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, I think, I, I think that like as a species, we evolved to be challenged. Right. And right. a lot of times, you know, we're in these temperature controlled environments where we have very few challenges and it's easy to not feel connected to life. But when you get out there and, and you actually like channel the animal in yourself for a little while, and you actually feel some of those those yeah. just really deep old patterns. I mean, it just, it makes you feel so alive. It's, it sounds like you really tapped into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And and I know one thing that I see, you, you know, talking about mm -hmm. a lot uh, on your Instagram is just good stress. Um, can, can you explain that a little bit more for, for the audience here? For sure. So I thought for the majority of my career that all stress was bad stress. And my yoga classes are really designed to counteract chronic stress. Um, stress can be a killer if it's chronic. So if you're stressed out for months and years at a time, it can speed up your biological aging process. It can make you sick. It can make you susceptible to all sorts of different uh, uh, physical illnesses and things like that. So stress on the one hand can be a killer. 
On the other hand, short bouts of stress in controlled duration can actually inoculate you against stress, and they can even give you temporary immune system boosts. Now, this is really interesting because the part of your nervous system that controls your stress response to a great, uh, to, to a big threat is called the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is your body's ultimate survival mechanism. So it's the fight or flight response that gives a lion the ability to run faster to catch a zebra, but it's also the fight or flight response that gives the zebra the ability to run away from the lion. Now, on some level, both organisms know that they're going to be hurt during their encounter or that it's likely they'll be hurt. So what happens when the fight or flight response ensues is the body of both organisms sends white blood cells and other anti-inflammatory agents to the key battle sites of the body. Those are places like the inner organs and the skin and the nose, and it gives a temporary boost in immunity. So during that time, in addition to being able to run faster and bite harder and all these other things, they actually be, uh, the organisms are better able to fight off different sicknesses and infection that might arise to their encounter. So what I'm doing is I'm just tapping into that. You know, I'm purposefully inducing the fight or flight response by exposure to extreme colds. Yeah. And I, I also exposed to extreme heat. Uh, it's a little counterintuitive, but yoga is sort of a good stress in and of itself or uh, other cardiovascular exercise because it stresses the system and makes it more robust. Yeah. And then I do a fourth modality, which is uh, a Zen style forest walk where you expose yourself to different aspects of nature for healing benefit through the immune system. In, in wow, that's really interesting stuff. What you just said, and it's super cool. I I never really I didn't I didn't know that's how like biologically in physio- the physiology and just the science behind all of it and how that all works. That's really cool. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the the walking meditation through the through through the woods or the um nature meditation you were just saying? Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's one of my favorites. You know, one of the big things that helped me heal from my PTSD was spending tons of time in the forest, just sort of freeform walking. And when I was walking, you know, I didn't really have an agenda. It wasn't a hike. I would like see a down tree somewhere with, uh, with some bark hanging off it. And I would strip off the bark and I would make it into rope. I just spent like a few hours doing that. Or, you know, if I was walking along and I see a patch of sunlight, I would just pop a squat, hang out, look at the sunlight pouring through the trees. And it just, it felt so amazingly peaceful. Now, when I started to read a little bit more about it, I found out that the Japanese have been doing that for a while. And uh, I think all cultures have been doing uh, sort of forest walks like that. But the practice in Japan is called Shinrin Roku, which means forest bathing. It's a term that was coined by Japanese municipalities back in the 80s. And because it was uh, really, uh, you know, promulgated by the municipalities, they also funded research to see what types of health benefits spending time in forested areas would give. And the researchers found that um, after doing a forest walk, a mindful forest walk, heart rates decreased, blood pressure almost invariably went down, and people got a boost in these uh, uh, anti-cancer cells called NK cells. Now, it turns out that there are many variables behind those different potential benefits, but one thing that happens when you're walking through a pine forest in particular is the pine forest basically puts out these compounds called phytocytes. Um, phytocytes help to protect the tree against insects and they're technically kind of a poisonous substance. So when you're walking and you're breathing in the air and you're mindfully taking in your environment, you're breathing in those phytocytes and it quite literally gives you an anti-cancer boost. So just walking through the forest. <laughs> now that's, that's it's, awesome. it, it's 
trippy. So in addition to that, <laughs> usually when you're doing the forest watch, you're integrating all five senses. So you do something to integrate your sense of smell, taste, touch, hearing, and so on. And those mindful experiences, I think, help to decrease the effects of chronic stress. So Shinrin Roku is just amazing because it gives you uh, some good stressors via the trees, but yeah. it also helps to counteract the effects of chronic stress. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm what because with me over the last eight months, I, I've taken on trail running as a, as a hobby. And I, whenever I'd go for runs, it would always be, you know, on the streets, you know, running on the road. Um, and there's just so much artificial stimulation that it's a bit overwhelming in, in the area that you're breathing. I'm running by, you know, in the Boston area, there's tons of traffic and you're just inhaling yeah. pollution. Um, so this summer, uh, you know, I was up in Vermont and I was like, you know, I'm going to just, train and destroy my body with with the earth that's here um and just something hit me different when i was in the woods it just i just felt so alive and maybe what you were describing is is what is happening to me and as i've taken that trail running practice down here i continue to you know run in the blue hills and in quincy um but yeah something changes while, while i'm in those woods and it hits different right you can it hits, feel it yeah it hits different i i don't wear i don't use headphones uh to run out there. I want to use all my senses. Uh, I want to be, you know, aware of my surroundings and just like hearing a squirrel, just like pop up in the woods. It's cool. Cause you, yeah. you react to it. And you're it's like, amazing. Oh, I'm not out. You, you feel like you're alone out there, but you're really not. You're, you're in like the natural habitat. And I find that so interesting what you, what you just spoke about. Um, because something does, sometimes I'll just stop and stare at things <laughs> and it's just so calming and, and stimulating. Um, and it's authentic and, and real. Um, because I, I feel as if, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, David. I, I was just going to say, I think that makes so much sense, man, because our species really evolved out of forests. You know, our yeah. ancestors spent so many hundreds of years in, in forested areas. And I think that our nervous systems have really adapted to those areas. And it's, it's crazy. Like I was reading that, um, in some of the Shinran Roku research that people who are placed in a hospital room with a view of trees tend to heal faster. Yeah. And sometimes if they don't have a window, even if you put a little picture of a tree, you see people seem to recover a little bit faster. So I think our nervous systems are just primed for the forest. And I think you absolutely tapped into that with some of your forest runs. Yeah. And in, in I don't want to get all political and talk about COVID here, but I think a lot of the conversation in the way we approach COVID was, you know, wear a mask and all that. That's, that's great. Isolate, stay six feet apart. I don't know if it's good for you or not, but like none of these things were like brought to our attention as, as humans, like things we can do naturally and that are like right at, at our, you know, right in front of us. Um, and something like this could help and benefit so many people during this pandemic who are overly stressed, you know, living in fear, um, is totally isolating themselves. And the impact of that alone is, is so much more impactful of potentially, you know, catching COVID. And again, I don't, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now, but um, I think, you know, some of these practices that you're doing could, could help so many people, but they may just not even know that these things are exist, you know, it's right in front of us, but don't know the benefits of it. They're, they're so simple. I mean, there, there's so much compelling research across the board that really talks about how cold can be good for you. Heat can be good for you. These forest walks are good for you and they're cheap. They don't cost anything. You can do them anytime and anywhere and they can just have profound benefits on not only physical health, but your mental state as well. Yeah. And, and I consider you an artist, like what you're doing, all these different practices. Um, do you feel as if your create creativity 
is much more open and your, your, your mind is much more creative in the, in these spaces? hundred percent without question. Yeah. Especially in the, uh, especially in the forest walks. I, I noticed that a lot of times when I'm walking, I don't try to think out any particular thing, but I just sort of let my mind run free form. Yep. And at the end of it, a lot of times I wind up figuring out something I haven't, I've been like sort of stumbling over for a little while, or I have some type of insight and, or I feel better able to engage creatively with my job. So I noticed a big boost. Have you noticed the same? Yeah. Um, I posted about this the other day. I was just about going to your safe place and it's a place that you, you know, you can be your, your true authentic self and you can consistently go there and, and not be judged and you can just be real. And when you're in that space, that's when like creative things just come and cause you're not being judged, you're being yourself and you're not trying to please other people. Um, and you're just, you're just fully aware of your surroundings. It's, it's an amazing feeling. And I've, and I don't know if you do this, but, um, I had been thinking about like jotting things down, bringing a notebook or a journal or like voice recorder. But then I thought to myself, like those thoughts belong there. Like they, whatever leaves with me, like that was meant to leave, but whatever, whatever thought I had in that space or place, it belongs there. It doesn't belong to leave. I don't know if you think this way or if you're like John down your, your, your thoughts, but that's how I approach it. No, man, I resonate with that so hard. I mean, in exactly the same way, I think that, you know, I think with PTSD, like, you know, a lot of times in the past, I was really on edge all the time. And, and I felt like I, I always had, I was always scanning the environment for different forms of threat from people or other things and stuff like that. And, I, I love the forest because when I'm out there, I just, I can just be me, you know, like I don't have yeah. to worry about like hiding anything or actually being someone for somebody else. I can just like purely be me. And I agree, man, there's something special about the realizations that arise there. And some part of me, I, you know, I've never tried to journalize. It could be awesome, but in some ways I kind of feel like that might get in the way of some of the, like the magic that I'm finding yeah. out there. And it sounds like you found that as well. Yeah. Cause then you almost feel like you're responsible for writing something down or, or talking into a, a exactly. you know, artificial microphone and recording what your, your thoughts are. Um, so everything should just be free flowing. Like the energy should just be coming and going. And, and it, like when you write something down or you, or you, you know, voice into a recorder, it stops. It, it doesn't keep it flowing. Does. It, it ends there, you know? Um, I feel a, re a real difference between like, like, it seems to me that if I'm recording something as I do sometimes, or perhaps like you say, journaling, it seems like there's an artificial separation between me and the forested place. Yeah. But when I let go of all that stuff, then all of a sudden I'm part of everything. And, and it's, yeah. it's really interesting. I think that some of the healing benefits come from just like fully immersing yourself without anything to get in between you and the experience. So yeah. I find that really healing and helpful. And, and so how, how long were you suffering with PTSD? Like, I'm sure you, you, you still... I'm sure to an extent still deal with it. And it sounds like you found the tools yep. to be able to, to manage it. Um, but how, how long were you in like a deep suffering and, and when did you finally come out of it? Like timeline wise? I literally didn't figure it out until probably three or four years ago. You know, I was, I, I like, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive because I'm a yoga teacher. Right? I'm supposed to be a super yeah. chill, calm guy. I am not <laughs> super chill on calm. Like I, I, I'm definitely fiery and anybody who knows me well, will definitely attest to that fact. Yeah. But, um, so it started when I was 12, you know, that was my friend's accident and my life just turned upside down after that. And I didn't make the connection at that point. I mean, it was a long time ago. There wasn't a lot of support for that. And 
I didn't even know it was a thing, but um, you know, I had, I was a pretty popular kid before that accident. I had tons of really well-balanced friends. And when thinking about my life, uh, you know, I look back at that experience and I realized that I got rid of all of my good friends and I hung out with the most destructive people. So four of my buddies have been to prison. Uh, you know, a number of them are dead at this point. Yeah. And, you know, I think that in some ways, you know, I resonated with some of the darkness in those people because I felt so dark on the inside. And then, you know, later on down the road, you know, I think my issues with anger and really my issues to with being able to connect to feeling like, like to, to emotions above uh, like anger and frustration. Yeah. That was a challenge, man. Like I, I literally exploded my life because I wasn't able to connect to feeling and I wasn't able to connect to the other people in my, through, through those feelings. So it, for me, it, it just, it took a breakdown of everything. You know, I basically exploded my business. I exploded my marriage. I exploded most of my major friendships. And uh, at the end of it, I was like, man, the one constant, and this is me and something's yeah. up. Wow. And, you know, I met a really great guy named Elix who helped me understand what was going on. He was a coach and I, he, uh, he helped me work through the accident. He helped me understand some of these physiological responses. And then you know, once I read about it, I looked through the uh, diagnostic criterion for PTSD and I was like, check, 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 check is <laughs> like, like all across the board. Yeah. So in some ways, you know, though I still deal with it, um, God, just like having some knowledge of where all those things came from has been so helpful. So I guess as like a yoga instructor and a, a meditation teacher, like how hard was it to, to teach and do yoga or was that, was, was that your safe place at, when you were doing that and everything else outside of that was, was, you know, suffering is, is that how it worked for you or because I would have never thought like when I met you five years ago, like you, you know, you were, you were suffering with something like that. And it sounds like a couple of years after I met you, you, you know, you, you seem to figure it out, but um, you know, you hear about athletes saying, you know, when they play basketball, everything kind of goes away. Is that what, you know, teaching yoga or your yoga practice and meditation does for you? Absolutely. For you? Yep. Absolutely. I, I know that that was the thing. I remember like I would be having a bad day and I'd be sort of triggered or something like that. But the one thing that always happens when I teach a class is I don't focus on anything else. Like my, my mind is completely focused on the class and I'm really present. Um, like anybody every now and then, you know, I'll check out for a second or so, but for the most part, I'm really in it. And so I think those classes became like really the times where I felt the most balanced in my day and the meditations as well. And I think the meditations absolutely helped me uh, deal with some of the chronic uh, effects of, of PTSD. But I honestly think that the environmental stressors via heat and cold yeah. and the forest, they did even more. I think, I think it was really the combination that has helped me get on track. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And, 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 and you're a meditation teacher as well, right? You have your own, uh, you know, educate or class that you teach and help people who are in a meditation practice and get them to become, become a teacher. Can you talk about that a little bit in that process of teaching, <laughs> create or building someone up to be a teacher? Yeah. So um, I've studied with my teacher, Lama Migmar. Uh, he's a Tibetan monk. He's a Harvard University Buddhist chaplain. I've been with him since 2006 or 2007. Wow. Um, so from him, I've learned a number of different types of meditation. And there's one particular type of meditation called shamatha. It's the basis of all meditation. And it's a, it's a concentration meditation. It's really helpful because it shows you how to use concentration to tip your nervous system from the sympathetic response, which puts you into fight or flight mode. And through concentration, it shows you how to bump it in the other direction toward rest and digest mode. 
So it's very simple. You concentrate on one single object like a candle flame or a blue flower or anything you want to focus on. When your mind wanders, you redirect and you redirect and you redirect. And then after a little while, your thinking slows down, your yeah. emotions start to stabilize. And at some point, your mind completely clears of thought and you're able to uh, really experience the ultimate nature of your mind beyond thought and concept. Yeah. So while you do that, in some ways, that type of meditation seems simple, but it's like a hike. There are all sorts of different obstacles and experiences that come up over the course of multiple meditations. Yeah. So the teacher training that I lead shows people how to do that meditation to calm their emotions. It introduces them to the obstacles that will most likely pop up when they practice. And it gives antidotes to those obstacles. And then finally, it, uh, it covers five different key experiences that arise when you meditate. And that's really important because sometimes when people meditate, they don't really know what they're trying to do. And as a consequence of that, sometimes their meditation can get off track. With shamatha meditation, the five experiences show people what to look for on their hike or on their practices so that they can make sure that they're getting the most out of their shamatha practice. What are those five things? Can you share those? I can. So they're metaphorically oriented around different, oriented around different bodies of water. Um, the first experience I think pretty much everybody has when they first start meditating, it's called mind like a waterfall. Yeah. Now in that experience, you sit down, you're focusing on your breath or you're focusing on your candle flame and you're thinking I'm supposed to be all chill and calm about this. <laughs> yeah. But the opposite happens, you know, maybe for the first time ever or the first time in a long time, you're not distracted by other stuff. So stuff starts to come up. Yeah. You start to feel more agitation. You start to feel more emotional discomfort. You feel physical discomfort. Now, most people stop practicing at that point because I think meditation isn't for them. But that's actually a really important uh, insight because it shows for perhaps the first time ever, the practitioner that their mind is kind of out of control. And so if they use that as a motivation to keep coming back to the practice, they have the second experiences, which is like, it's called mind like a quickly flowing stream. In that mental state, you still have discomfort. Your thoughts are still going at a million miles an hour. But subject, subjectively, there's a slower. It's just like it's just like the, uh, a stream in the Vermont mountains. It's yeah. still rolling quick, but it slows down a little bit. Yeah. Now, now, subsequently after that, there are three more experiences. The third is called mind like a, a pond being fed by two rivers. The fourth experience is mind like an infinite ocean with little waves. Yeah. And the fifth experience is mind like an infinite ocean with no waves whatsoever. Wow. How long does it take someone to go from, you know, the waterfall of mind to the, to the fifth step, like in, in their practice over a, I'm sure it's different for each person and circumstantial, but like on average, how long would it take a person to, to be able to get all the way to the fifth step you're referring to? You know, I think you're right, Justin. It depends on the individual. Um, so that whole overview that I, that I just sort of walked you through, it comes from the Tibetan monastic tradition. In those particular traditions, they do meditative retreats where they do multiple sessions, oftentimes four sessions of three or four hours each. So they'll be doing 12 to 16 hours a day of practice. Now, for those people, I think they can experience mind like a uh, mind like the infinite ocean with no waves, maybe after a number of months of practice. Yeah. But for most people, like most of us are integrating meditation into our day to day. And so it's altogether possible to practice an entire lifetime and maybe not to experience that. But you can definitely experience mind like a quickly flowing stream and mind like a lake being fed by rivers. And the emotional calming that you get from even those two base experiences is pretty amazing. Yeah. 
And it sounds like consistency is, is the most important thing with meditation. Like you're not going to show up every day and it's, you know, you're going to hit the, the, the fifth step there. Like there's going to be days where you only make it to the, the first and to the second, the next day. Um, is, I mean, what would you recommend for someone new starting out to meditation? Like, would it be consistency or is there anything else that they, they would need to do as well to, to really continue to, to become really good at their practice? I think consistency is the number one thing. It's, it's like, it's like the gym, you know, if you go lift weights once a week, you're not going to make a lot of progress, but <laughs> yeah. if you're structured and you get in there as much as you need to, you're going to really grow by leaps and bounds. So yeah. what I recommend with people is to not get too carried away with setting huge practice goals at first. Instead, five minutes is an awesome first duration to start with, but rather than doing five minutes, like once a week, do five minutes every single day with regularity. And then at some point, you're going to start to feel the effects of it. Once that happens, you can decide whether or not to add more time. But shorter practice done frequently is much better than a really long practice done one day a week. Yeah. Yeah, I've started meditation practice um, over the last six to eight months. It's not really anything I'm following. It's more of myself just trying to clear my mind. And yeah, there's days where I'm just like, oh, man, this this is this is brutal. I can't lay here. Yeah, there's, it can be hard. Right? There's so many things running through my mind. But I, I think when you're in that situation, you're finally becoming self-aware of that you're thinking like, cause if you're moving around and doing your day-to-day -day life and you're not stopping and you don't realize you're thinking, but once you realize how much you're thinking, it, you, you, you get like, like you said, um, uneasy body feels weird and you almost just don't know what to do with yourself. Um, since we do Definitely. live in a world of stimu stimulation between our phones and just everything going on on in our, external environment we tend to never be able to be okay with what's going on inside i think that's such a it's a great insight justin and i think that when people secularize meditation you know mo, mo, these types of meditation come from uh religious traditions right and when people brought these types of meditation to the states i think they tried to strip away a lot of the religiosity which is great because it makes it more accessible to people yeah but i think that what happened in that exchange is that some of the important stuff was lost. And, and I think that, you know, some of the early proponents of meditation talked about it as a way to feel calm or to feel good. Yeah. But the problem with that is some of the meditations in which you grow the most are not the ones that make you feel great. Yeah. Like sometimes if you're sitting there and you feel all those emotions that you're talking about, yeah. you learn so much more than that than you do in those really blissful moments and those blissful experiences. In, in, so meditation in, can, can make you feel amazing, but, Sometimes the practices don't make you feel that way. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Because when, because when you're not self-aware and you're having those emotions, like you don't even realize that you're angry. Like, like it's just natural. It's just in, but if you're meditating and, and like you said, if you're dealing with real emotions, like you're, you're combating them, you're, you're realizing they're there. You're trying to break that energy flow. Um, and you're like, I can't live like this. Like I'm going to fight against it, you know? And those emotions, those, those hard emotions seem to win a lot of the time. And they're um, strong, <laughs> they're strong, you know, they, they suck. Um, and for someone with, with PTSD and, and myself with, with just some trauma and, you know, substance abuse issues, like I've always just dealt with them in, 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 in a bad way. And I've just, always ended up doing drugs or drinking or me too, me lashing too. out. Um, it's, it's never, a. it was never good, but 
and it's still today, like I, I don't deal with them perfectly. And I don't know anybody who does, you know, we we're we're human, you know, um, we're animals. Like <laughs> that's what, that's, that's the thing. But it, um, but to your point, like you just got to keep showing up and it's hard, you know? Um, and, and to your point about the mainstream, I call it mainstream meditation with all the apps and, and it's great. Like it's helping people, you know, start out their practice, but I I think too, there's a disconnect to actually what the purpose of it is um, and why people are, are, are doing it. Um, some people are just, I think, doing it just to do it maybe, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, one thing that I found about meditation that has been very helpful is, you know, when I discovered I had anger management problems, I always thought, man, my anger is so horrible. I need to get rid of it. And then I would start to feel angry that I was feeling angry, right? So I would start to pour pain on top of pain. And it did nothing. My anger was still there because my nervous system was really triggered, right? But what I learned through that, through sitting back and observing my anger for a long time, is that my anger did have a purpose. It was trying to protect me. Mm. And as soon as I could see that it had a purpose, then I started to realize that I didn't have to get rid of it. I didn't have to make myself feel any different. So what I learned how to do is take a step back by naming it. And then I learned how to create more space for it. Now, this for me was a game changer. So before I would try to get rid of my anger and it would just usually come back and bite me in the ass, right? Yeah. But then I heard, I heard this, this old school metaphor um, they use in the Buddhist tradition. It's about a monk and his apprentice. Apparently, the apprentice was complaining about a bunch of tasks that he had to do and he was complaining about his meditation. So the master had his disciple grab a handful of salt and he had him put it in a glass of water and then he had him take a drink of the water of course, tasted horrible. So afterward, the monk took his disciple outside. He had him take another handful of salt and he dropped it in the lake. And then he scooped up a a, a cup of the water and the disciple drank the water and he said, tastes fine. And the monk said, exactly. You know, when you're experiencing a moment of anger or some strong emotion, if you shrink in on yourself, it always makes it more intense. But if you can in some way learn how to make more space for it, then all of a sudden, despite the fact the anger is still there, you have enough space to support it. And that's one thing that meditation is really, really helpful with. It can help you calm your nervous system, but it will never get rid of your emotions. What it can do is it can make it possible for you to accept that your emotions are there and to be able to function, not driven by those emotions, but function, uh, you know, in in a more, uh, I think, healthy and holistic way. Yeah. And I heard, a, and to, the, to your point there, like um, I heard, I was listening to a podcast the other day or, or a couple weeks ago uh, and this guy was on there talking about meditation and, you know, everyone's like, I don't know if my meditation practice is working or like, I don't know if I'm good at it. And he mentioned it's, it's not how you are in that meditate in that present moment when you're meditating, it's how you are in life and, and how you are as a human being. That's how you know if your if your meditation practice is working. Um, and, what I saw from you, you were talking about how you bring your yoga, your yoga practice with you everywhere. Like it's not just during your sessions or um, when you're teaching or maybe doing it on your own, like y- your yoga practice is you, like your yoga practice is right now. Like you're, you're here, you know? So um, I, I guess if you can talk about that a little bit, because I feel really strongly about that too. And I think for me, I bring my meditation practice with me and just my overall, everything that I'm, I'm doing with me everywhere I go. I practice Tibetan Buddhist meditation. And as part of that, we have different practices that we do at all parts of the day. So we have meditations we do when we're going to sleep. 
We have meditations we do when we wake up. We have meditations we do when we eat. And pretty much all parts of the day are driven by some type of meditative awareness. Um, I'm not great at it. You know, I'm still practicing for sure. But I, um, that particular practice helps me to, uh, to basically wrap all aspects of my spirituality and my practice into my daily life. And for me, it's really helpful. You know, I definitely don't get it right all the time. But when I do, it makes a really big difference. Yeah. Now, aside, aside from that, I think one of the other things that I really like to do is, or what I've found is a lot of the stuff that I do recreationally with all this good stress stuff I've been talking about is really amazing for meditation. Um, so say, for example, like, I think the coldest day I've been outside was, uh, it, it was basically 25 miles an hour and the real feel, uh, the wind was 25 miles an hour and the real field temperature was negative 10 degrees. I was outside for three hours at those temperatures with nothing but a pair of swimming trunks and boots on. So I, I was using the Tibetan uh, meditations to stay warm throughout. I didn't get frostbite. I didn't shiver or anything like that. But what was amazing about that experience is that when I try to meditate, sometimes I sit there and if I've had a really busy day, like my mind is all over the place. But what's really, really cool is if you're trying to meditate in a snow field, there's no messing around. The moment you let your mind slip, the cold starts to creep in. So for me, being able to draw meditation into experiences like that, or meditation experiences when I when I do uh, walking across hot coals, yeah. those types of experiences are amazing because there's a there's a sense of accountability that's maybe not there when you're practicing in a relaxed place. So I've been finding through integrating meditation into cold exposure and heat exposure, my other meditation practices when I'm sitting on the cushion get better. And because those experiences are also training my mind, I think my mind is a little bit more under control when I'm in my real life as well. And I think people listening, like, how don't you get hypothermia? Is it kind of to what you were talking about before? It's the fight or flight stressors that are going on. Is that, is that how you're not getting frostbite or not, you know, ha get, you know, coming down with hypothermia? So at some point, no matter what you do, nature will win. You can push <laughs> away the cold for a while, but yeah. it will get you at some point. Yeah. Um, so there's no magic with that. Um, you know, if it gets cold enough and the wind blows fast enough, you will get frostbite. Yeah. And if you're out there long enough and you're wet enough, you will get hypothermia. What most people have forgotten is that the human body can take tremendous amounts of cold, mm -hmm. but we're not cold adapted because we're always in temperature controlled rooms. So I am able to bear those temperatures because I start cold acclimating early on in the year and it's easy. I just let myself get cold. So yeah. in the winter time, I usually, I don't really wear a coat unless I go somewhere where people will think I'm weird because I'm not wearing a coat. <laughs> um, when, when I drive around in the winter time, no matter how cold the day is, I roll down the windows and I let the wind blow across my skin. Nice. And what, ha what happens, Justin, is between that and one additional exercise I do, which is the ice baths that I talked about. Yeah. After about four weeks, my body um, basically converts some of my white fats to brown fat. Mm. Now, brown fat's interesting in that it has more mitochondria. Mitochondria gobble up a lot of energy and they produce their own heat as they gobble up that energy. So by exposing myself to the cold, I create uh, shifts in my body composition, whereby the brown fat cells in my body actually create more heat internally. Wow. Now, the only way to access that is by exposing myself to cold without letting myself shiver. If I shiver or if I put on a jacket, my body knows that it can get heat from other sources. So it doesn't trigger non-shivering thermogenesis.
So by regularly exposing, by not letting myself get cold, by flexing, and by doing specific breathing exercises when I'm meditating, I'm able to create internal heat bursts to push away the cold long enough to stay warm. That's so interesting. <laughs> That's so cool. And and you mentioned you you do heat therapy too, like walking on coals and uh, do you do you do like saunas and, and things like that as well? Yeah, I'm I'm a huge huge fan of saunas. So after I discovered uh, some of this stuff around cold, uh, you know, I was like, I was thinking, God, what else is possible? So I started to really look into uh, heat and. As it turns out, the human body can't handle heat as well as it handles cold. But when you're hot for a controlled duration of time, your body releases something called heat shock proteins. Heat shock proteins basically help to protect against cellular damage as your cells replicate. Sometimes when they're replicating, they get folded up in these weird ways. And the heat shock proteins seem to prevent that. So there was this really amazing sauna study that came out where they followed these Finnish guys for, I think, around 20 years. And they found that the people who spent a lot of time in the sauna, like four to seven days per week, had a steep reduction in all-cause mortality over the 20 years. I think it was like somewhere around 40%. They also noticed that uh, they had uh, lower incidences of heart disease and all these other things. So as it turns out, you know, heat exposure is one of the most amazing things that you can do for your health. And the Finns and the people in Scandinavia have been doing it for centuries. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So would you rather be hot or cold? I'm assuming cold. It sounds like you, you like the cold better, but I, I don't want to speak for you. I, I love them both. I love them both, but for different reasons, Justin. So yeah, part of my PTSD. Um, so if you have a fight or flight uh, response, you have fight, flight, or freeze. Sometimes people forget about the freeze, right? Yeah. Some people argue that depression is a manifestation of the freeze response. So if your nervous system is triggered in some way, like me with PTSD, I had regular nervous system triggering, I would go into freeze mode. And the manifestation of that was I'd feel severe depression. The first thing I noticed when I went into an ice bath is my depression was gone instantaneously. And the reason that happened is that when you go into an ice bath, your body releases a substance called norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is actually used in a lot of antidepressant drugs. Yep. So this is yep. a simple way to give yourself a dose of that, and it can give you a temporary alleviation of depressive symptoms. Yep. Now, on the other hand, heat, for me uh, in particular, has been really helpful for control of anxiety. Um, whenever I'm in, in the heated environment, it's a little counterintuitive because I start to feel claustrophobic when I'm first in there and mm-hmm. the saunas I'm in are hot. They're sometimes 250 degrees. Yeah. So when I'm in there, I start to feel claustrophobic. I feel like I want to run out, but I've gradually extended my capacity. And I find that afterward, even though it makes me feel anxious when I'm in there, I feel a complete, uh, like a degradation of my overall anxiety. It really goes down quite a lot. How long are you able to stay? Now, it turns sauna? out that when. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I usually don't push it more than 12. No, no, not at all. I usually don't press it any more than 20 minutes. And I actually don't try to time the duration because uh, like it's, it's easier to heat your body up than it is to cool your body down. Yeah. So I usually go with duration. You know, once I get to the point where I start to feel like it's hard to breathe or I'm feeling really antsy, I get out, I rest for a little while and I come back. But the guys in the Swedish, uh, in the Finnish sauna study, they were spending around 20 minutes at a time in a sauna that was 175 degrees. So I think that over time in practice, I've tried to build up so that I'm doing those 20 minute sessions. Great. And do you have your own sauna at your house or do you have like a portable one that you use? 
That was the biggest bummer of COVID, man. I used to, uh, to use the sauna in the gym all the time, which is no longer an option. Yeah. So I found two, uh, two really great alternatives. Um, three alternatives, actually. Um, the first alternative is super simple. And this is what I started with. I would do cardio exercise to get my core temperature up. And then I took a really hot bath afterward. Um, I had pretty much the same reaction to the bath as I did the sauna. It helped with anxiety, yeah. depression, all the other stuff. Yeah. Um, the next thing that I did, and this, this was a little more expensive, but I found a sauna tent from Russia. It's by a company, uh, it's called Morge. Yeah. Uh, the, the tent is called Morge, M-O-R-J. And it's super cool. It's a portable tent that you put in your backyard and it's got yeah. a little wood-fired stove and okay. it gets ripping hot. It gets, I've, <laughs> I've taken the temperature, it gets up to 250. Wow. So I use that through, uh, through, through, through most of the winter. Now, yeah. the final thing that I got is, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to introduce these things in groups and in and, and different uh, trainings and stuff like that. Um, I will be able to use the tent sauna, but I wanted to come up with a cheaper option for people to, uh, to use at home. Yeah. So I've been using um, these, they look ridiculous, but it's a little box that your head sticks out of. And it's basically, <laughs> it has a tube that feeds, uh, that basically feel, feeds um, moist, hot air into it. So it's like a wet sauna and that thing gets you really hot as well. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Where, where do you get that? Or you can get those on Amazon. They're, they're, they're everywhere, man. What are they called? I think uh, the one that I got was, it's basically just a, it's a portable sauna. I think, <laughs> okay. I think mine costs maybe 150 bucks, but it gets nice. my body as hot as any gym I've ever gone to. And it's cool because your head's outside and they even have a thing so you can read. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it works. That's so cool. It, it sounds like you have so many tools in your tool belt that, you, you know, if, if you're feeling any sort of way, like you, you can go to so many different things. Um, and that, that's, a, that's amazing. You, ha you have all these tools. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, it's a great relief for me. I mean, I'll always deal with some of the after effects of, of PTSD and things like that. But now if I'm feeling depressed, I don't feel helpless. Or if I'm yeah. feeling anxious, you know, I feel like I have something I can go to. If I have anger, I feel like I have something to go to. So for me, it's, it's been so incredibly helpful. And I'm just really passionate about helping other people understand that they can do the same because you don't have to have PTSD to suffer from all of these different things that I've been talking about. And they really help for so many different things. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to know, like all these tools weren't built overnight. Like you had a lot of failure with it, trial and error and, and things that worked for a while and, and, and stopped working. So yeah, you know, had to move on. And I, I think in our culture and society, we're just instant gratification. There's not a lot of delayed gratification, uh, which kind of points to the, you know, consistency, consistency, just keep doing it and trying new things. Um, and, and that's what I I suffered with a lot. You know, everyone uh, before before I f started figuring shit out and I'm still figuring it out. Um, but it, I always thought, you know, take a magic pill or um, just do it for a week and it'll be good. But you got to keep doing it in the consistency and, and building the tool belt. Um, and it can't just be one thing like, um, you know, maybe maybe it can be. Some people can just go to the gym seven days a week. But for me, like I, I need I need changes. I, I need to do something different. Um, that's why I have, you know, meditation, you know, weightlifting, running, um, you know, reading, uh, I, I can't read that well though, cause I have ADHD. So I, um, but listening to podcasts is a good way for me to learn. Um, but yeah, I, I like, I just want to conf confirm, like, I don't think your tools are built overnight. You, you're, you're still building them and, and it's a journey. Absolutely. Always, always a journey for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Um, 
Well, David, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And I, I really appreciate you um, coming on to my podcast. If any listeners are trying to find you, um, where, where can they go to, to learn more about you and, and, your, and your practice and everything else you have to offer? So I have a website. It's called davidmagone.com, M-A-G-O-N-E. And it's a site. I have uh, probably a good 50 pre-recorded yoga videos there. Um, we also, I also do regular um, live class drop-ins every week. Um, we've held back on the good stress uh, materials just a little bit because of COVID and a lot of this stuff has to be taught in person. But as the world starts to turn normal again, I'll also have information about heat exposure, cold exposure, forest walking, and then of course the yoga practices as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I really look forward to things lifting and I, I hope can, you know, soon attend some of these, these things that you have, because what you're, what you're doing to me, I, I admire, um, you know, I look up to you. I love seeing your posts, love seeing what you're doing. And, um, yes, thank you so much for coming on and uh, I wish you great success and love seeing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you as well, Justin. Thanks. All right. Oh, don't want to do that.